Hello, sweethearts. Welcome to Love Letters 2. I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us today on Love Letters 2. It is our Thursday episode today on Love Letters 2, our podcast again, dedicated to the unexpected and delightful. And today we are bringing you the stories about two extraordinary women, both really influential in the 20th century, albeit in very different ways. Absolutely. Alicia, you're going to start us off with your love letter. I am. And Melissa, this is the love letter to one of my favorites, the original Angel from Montgomery. I'm so excited. I know you are too. Dear Zelda Fitzgerald, today, March 10th, is the anniversary of your death, which happened in 1948, 74 years ago. But your spirit is still very much in this world. I see it in a thousand ways on the daily, in art, in culture, in film, in press, also working in my life as well. This love letter is to you, Zelda, in homage of you, in praise of you for everything you brought to the 20th century and beyond. What a gal you were. Let's fill out a bit of your background in the typical ways first. You were a daughter, a sister, a wife, and a mother too. Zelda, you were born in Montgomery, Alabama, July 24th, 1900, the last child of five to Anthony Dickinson Sayre and Minerva Buckner. Your daddy, huge in politics, worked as a lawyer, a representative in the Alabama State Legislature. He was a state senator, a city judge, and a justice of the Alabama Supreme Court as well. Your mama, Minerva Buckner, was extravagant who in her earlier days had ambitions herself of being an actress. But her affluent and powerful Kentucky political relatives and father too, Minerva's a daughter of a senator, nixed any idea of Minerva running off into the theater and off Minerva goes to Alabama with the future judge. Zelda, you are the baby of the family, born rather late in your mother's having kids cycles, You are the last child. You're born when your oldest sister is 14, and you were pretty much called baby your whole life. You grow up in the tiny, tiny capital of Montgomery as royalty, really, very much protected and coddled in this special bubble where a very young Tallulah Bankhead was one of your running buddies. Although she was a few years older than you, you sure did learn a lot from Tallulah. You had a terrific example of how to wild child. And Zelda, you sure were a wild child. You were left mostly unsupervised and indulged by your mother as the baby. Zelda, you played, you drank, you danced, you smoked, you wore a nude bathing suit to the swimming hole and have dives of perfection that could not be beat. You were legendary. You knew how to have fun and flaunt convention You had brains and creativity and beauty and a rebelliousness all along with the heart of an actress and a Leo too. You were a flapper before being a flapper was cool. You set the trend. You will write of flappers. The best flapper is reticent emotionally and courageous morally. You always know what she thinks, but she does all her feeling alone. Oh, honey, you did so much feeling. There is no bigger deal in the state of Alabama, maybe even in the Southeast, than you, Zelda Sayre. You are sought after by everyone. 
At Auburn University, there's a fraternity named Zeta Sigma in honor of your initials. And membership is only granted for boys who've actually had a date with you. But it isn't just in Alabama where your presence is felt. You came over to Atlanta, too, to flirt with our boys from Georgia Tech and the University of Georgia. It was said about you when Zelda Sarah came to dances, the Birmingham girls just went on home. <laughs> Why even try? It's kind of you it, right? It is in Montgomery at the Country Club in June of 1918 that you are going to meet your future husband, who is in town for boot camp at Camp Sheridan, pressed and polished in his custom-made Brooks Brothers uniform. And sure, of course, Scott Fitzgerald is head over heels about you. Who isn't head over heels about you? In July of that year, you will write about it. The night you gave me my birthday party, you were a young lieutenant and I was a fragrant phantom, wasn't I? And it was a radiant night, a night of soft conspiracy, and the trees agreed that it was all going to be for the best. Oh, Zelda, what a realistic, romantic, or romantic realist you were. I mean, sure, Scott can be one of your beaux, but you had so many. You're collecting fraternity pins. You have at least a half a dozen boys and servicemen that will rightfully call you their fiance. Scott's no different. He's gone back up north and is making $35 a week, and your parents overwhelmingly disapprove of him, reminding you on the daily that he not only is a Princeton dropout, but he has the ridiculous idea of wanting to become a writer. Your mother warns you of imminent disaster. But there are letters. There are so many letters, and it's a long-distance romance. And Scott is hooked, and maybe you don't want to be. You're looking for your shot to get the heck out of Montgomery, just like your friend Tallulah's done. But Scott maybe isn't looking like the one you want to do it with. So you will break the engagement with him in June of 1919. Scott does not go away. He doubles down and begins to write harder, 16 hours a day to complete This Side of Paradise, which is released March 26, 1920. And it is less than two weeks later, April 3rd, 1920, that the two of you are getting married at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Scott is 23. And Zelda, you are 19, and the two of you are about to set the world on fire. Zelda, you wrote that she quietly expected great things to happen to her, and no doubt, that's one of the reasons why they did. The two of you honeymooned at the Biltmore Hotel, built just a few years before in 1913, with its infamous clock where lovers in the 20th century meet. You two were so rambunctious that you got tossed from the Biltmore Hotel on your honeymoon as well. This time period is extravagance. Zelda, you're the queen of the flappers, and your husband, Scott, is the king of the jazz age. You are legendary in New York City. You dance on tables at the Waldorf. You ride on top of taxi cabs down Fifth Avenue. You're dancing in fountains. You're both performing but you're also writing the script and playing the roles of the characters that you decide to take on. You look and dress the part. You are living high and large. 
No party is complete without the two of you. You are the it couple. The next decade will bring a wild ride, not only with motherhood in 1921, but an international tour, so to speak, beginning by 1924, moving about in the world with a lot of time spent in Paris and all the famous and legendary folks that you're going to meet. But they aren't famous and legendary to you. They're your friends or enemies, depending on the person, Ernest Hemingway being the biggest example of your enemy. You saw right through him and called him bogus. Zelda, you had a way of assessing people right on up, although many did not necessarily understand you. Pablo Picasso will say that you drank too much and talked too fast. And even when you were in eight of the best institutions in the world seeking treatment that your husband wanted to control, you were misunderstood. The Alabama never left you. Your voice, your cadence, your movements, your persona. And it is from here that I would like to turn the narrative to your talents, however misunderstood by others. As an Alabama girl myself, Zelda, I see you. In addition to all the monikers already describing you above, you were also a novelist, a truly, truly terrific writer, a painter, and a dancer too. You were a talented dancer. Although you danced in Montgomery your whole life within your hometown classes, it was your racy dances at the Montgomery Country Club that always gained you some attention. It was in Paris in the mid-20s that you reacquainted yourself with your love of dance. You trained with the best teachers. You were friends with all the folks making the ballet russe at the time. You actually gained enough skill to be offered a solo role in Aida in Naples, although Scott will make you turn that role down. Zelda, you were an immensely talented painter. It is in Paris that Gerald Murphy will begin to work with you on the basics of color theory, composition, and his wife Sarah at the same time at their Villa America and Cap d'Antibes will influence your watercolor and gouache style too. You will continue to work on your art for the remainder of your life, not just with pieces on canvas, but also paper dolls for your daughter, Scotty, watercolors, paintings of flowers and places, and people too. Your work as a painter is extraordinary, and you never really lost that subversive sense of humor. There's a wonderful painting that you'll create celebrating your daughter, Scotty, and her husband, Jack Lanahan, arriving at Grand Central Terminal on their honeymoon. But there's one essential change. Grand Central Terminal famously has spherical chandeliers helpfully supplied by the Vanderbilt family within the building. But in this painting, your painting, the famous lover's clock from the Biltmore Hotel is substituted. There are no hands marking the time but it is a little bit of a nod to your honeymoon at the Biltmore Hotel many, many moons ago. Your art inspired so much of Scott's work as well. I dare say there would not have been a great Gatsby without you. The great American novel that Scott started when you both were living in Long Island was stalled. Scott couldn't get it going. There was no definition to the characters. 
And while on the beach with Sarah Murphy in 1924, you drew those characters for Scott until your fingers bled for him to get inspired. Zelda, you will paint every day right up to the day of your death. Art is your solace and also works as the canvas of your vivid and marvelous imagination. Zelda, dancing and painting were not your only talents. You are an incredible writer as well. Now, Scott naturally is a writer. He's writing at this time novels and short stories too, but Zelda, you were writing with him and you were writing for him. You are the muse that inspires his work. Scott's writing directly from you, using your voice, your journals, your experiences. And you get a break to write for women's magazines under your own byline until you're getting published. And then Scott's going to put a lot of his name on your work as a sole byline, robbing you of that credit saying we can make more money. If it's just my byline, we can make more money on this. One of my favorite bits was your review of this side of paradise with a nod to another one of your friends, Dorothy Parker, with its intent. Quote, it seems to me that on one page, I recognized a portion of an old diary of mine, which mysteriously disappeared shortly after my marriage. And also scraps of letters, which though considerably edited, sound to me vaguely familiar. In fact, Mr. Fitzgerald, I believe that's how he spells his name, seems to begin that plagiarism begins at home. <laughs> oh, that's clever. I love her. Mm-hmm. Zelda, your first most productive writing period is from 1929 to 1934, mainly from the highbrow institutions your husband has you placed in for treatment. See, after the release of The Great Gatsby, Scott has been working on his next novel, Tender is the Night, for like nine years. He likes to use all of your autobiography and medical records for his source material. And I'm going to agree with you that this really isn't a cool move at all. So you, in 1932, from one of those institutions, will reclaim your source material and your medical records, and you will write your novel, Save Me the Waltz, in about four weeks. Melissa, can't you just see (laughs) Reese Witherspoon, like in Legally Blonde? Like what? Writing a novel's hard? Right. He's over there for nine years. She's got a month. All good. Zelda, you will not tell Scott that you sent it to a publisher, and wowza, he sure doesn't like you having your own work, but you did it anyway. It was your life after all, and who better to write about it? You will continue to write in your second most productive period from 1940 to 1948, immediately after Scott's death and right up to yours, March 10th, 1948, where you perished in the tragedy of a fire in the hospital at the age of 48, along with eight other souls whose lives were lost that terrible evening. Here's to you, Zelda Sayre, goddess, muse, legend, and simply an extraordinary talent, just being yourself. You made an impact wherever you went in the world. If there is ever a soul from Alabama that deserves to be celebrated, remembered, and praised, it is you. 
my ever-loved Angel from Montgomery. That was lovely. And I so love true. Her. She's just one of the most magnificent women. And her praises are too infrequently sung. One of a kind. I'm going to take a little break and wipe my eyes. Maybe <laughs> Melissa on the flip would come back with another kind of love letter from you. Yes, I have a very different influential woman of the 20th century. See you on the other side, friends. So, Melissa, you're bringing us a different kind of angel in your tale this week. Yes, I am. She was very much an angel in her own right, but very different than our very dear Zelda. Dear Florence Nightingale, in the last few years, more than ever, the world has seen just how important nurses are to our society. Where would we be without nurses? You, Florence Nightingale, were a pioneer in the field of nursing and made healthcare cleaner, safer, and kinder for patients. You were born on May 12, 1820 in Florence, Italy, to wealthy English parents. Your progressive parents believed in educating their two daughters, so you and your sister were educated in a far superior way than most girls during that time, but you were still expected to marry young and start a family and really not use the education for much. However, when you were a teenager, you believed that you received a calling from God to help the poor and sick. Not only was this not part of your parents' plan for you, but nursing was actually not even considered to be a respectable profession at the time. Needless to say, your parents did not approve. You stood strong, though, and refused to marry the many potential suitors that your parents believed to be appropriate matches for you because you were determined to become a nurse. Eventually, you were allowed to go to Germany and then Paris to study, and you quickly made a name for yourself in the world of nursing. You returned to England in 1853 and ran a hospital in London. However, when the Crimean War broke out in 1854, your skills and passion were needed more than ever. England was completely unprepared to deal with the number of injured soldiers. The medical facilities were not large enough, lacked supplies, and most importantly, were completely unsanitary. When the situation started to be covered in the press, the Secretary of War decided he needed to do something to improve the medical care for wounded and sick soldiers. You were asked to organize and manage a group of nurses to treat wounded soldiers near the battlefields. Of course, you agreed. In November 1854, you and a group of 40 nurses arrived in Constantinople to care for the British soldiers. Instead of being grateful for the help, the doctors there didn't want you and your fellow nurses because they didn't want to have to work with women. Can you imagine turning down free help no, in a hospital? No. Come on. But they quickly realized that they didn't have a choice and they desperately needed your help. Not only did you provide care for the sick and wounded, but you also brought medical supplies, food, and ultimately, most importantly, systems and procedures for proper sanitation. One of the wells that the water was being brought to the soldiers from had a dead and rotting horse in it. Oh, no. Yes. Sewage was a problem. The hospitals were terribly unclean. Prior to you, many of the soldiers would become more ill from the unsanitary conditions in the military hospital and contract deadly infections from the lack of cleanliness. 
It was here that you became known as the lady with the lamp because you would carry your lamp around at night checking on the soldiers. How comforting it must have been for these men to see your lamp coming their way and know that they were not alone. You made an enormous impact in a short period of time. Within six months, you and your team transformed the hospital and took the death rate from 40% all the way down to 2%. That is incredible. Incredible. After all of your revolutionary work during the Crimean War, you returned to England and continued your passion to improve the condition of healthcare facilities and the care that patients receive. You even became friendly with Queen Victoria as she was interested in your findings and experience. You were so influential to her that she formed a royal commission to improve the health of the British Army based on your recommendations. I had no idea. I learned so much about Florence Nightingale researching this. I, I knew she was a pioneer in nursing, but she, she was just really phenomenal. In addition to writing over 150 books, pamphlets, and reports on health-related issues, you're also credited with creating one of the first versions of the pie chart. This is a whole part of your story that I really think is widely unknown amongst the general population. You were in fact so skilled with numbers and analyzing data that in 1858, you were elected as the first woman member of the Royal Statistical Society. You believed that understanding data is essential for improvement and called statistics the most important science in the world. You weren't just a pioneer in nursing. You were also a pioneer in the use of the data to understand the current situation and make plans on how to move forward. You were able to closely monitor the results of your new practices through the use of statistics. For example, your version of root cause analysis revealed that British soldiers were more likely to die because of typhoid, cholera, and dysentery spread through unsanitary conditions and practices than from injuries that they had sustained in battle. In 1859, you published a book called Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not. And in 1860, you opened your Nightingale Training School at St. Thomas Hospital and remained devoted to furthering the cause and educating nurses in the public. Until your death on August 13th, 1910, at the age of 90, you never stopped advocating for safe nursing practices. And on that day, August 13th, we celebrate International Nurses Day, which began in 1965. Here's to you, Florence Nightingale, a pioneer of safe and healthy nursing practices that revolutionized the healthcare standards. Your work continues to save lives. You continue to inspire nurses and all healthcare professionals to continuously analyze what is happening and find ways to improve patient outcomes. And here's to you, all the nurses and healthcare workers out there. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for everything you do every day for the countless patients you care for. Well done. I know I say it at the end of every episode, Melissa, but every episode that we put out is my favorite one until the <laughs> one we do. And then it's always my favorite. It's so fun learning these things about these people. I think I know a lot until I start to research and then I realize how little I actually knew compared to how much there is to learn. It is absolutely our joy to bring some of these delightful love letters to you. Thanks everybody for tuning in today. We will be back next Tuesday with more missives to the wonderful and unexpected. 
Until we meet again, darlings, stay in love. You said it. Thanks for listening to Love Letters 2, a Hemlock Creatives production. Feel like showing some love to Love Letters 2? We'd love it if you tell a friend or leave us a kind review or even come and visit us on social media. You can find us at Instagram or Facebook at Love Letters 2 Podcast. You can also reach out and email us at loveletters2podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at loveletters2podcast.com. Until we meet again in the next episode, darlings, stay in love.